Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter number 11, and we'll get back to our series here. Once again, part two, when you get to Revelation chapter number 11, if you would please stand and let's read our text. It's the same text that we read last week, and so I'm not going to, I don't have any surprise topics. This is the seventh trumpet, and there's three different things that we'll focus on. I'll talk about briefly what we talked about last week, but first, let's read our text and then ask the Lord to bless our time together this morning. Verse number 15, Revelation 11, and the seventh angel sounded, and there was a great voice in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. The nations were angry, and thy wrath is come. The time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. There were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Verse number 19 makes it clear that Indiana Jones is not going to find it. You can dig everywhere that you want. You're not going to find it because it's not there to be found. But we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Father, bless us now as we bring the word of God and some very important truths, some neglected truths today. I pray, Father, that the power of God would be present upon this service. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to honor and thank you for our fathers. And Lord, sometimes this is a sad time for people whose fathers are in heaven or have gone on uh, into eternity. And Lord, I realize that. And each and every one of us have a story and each and every one of us have all kinds of memories, some positive, some negative. But I pray that we would all gather together here under the teaching of our Heavenly Father, this Bible here that I'm preaching out of, the truths that I'm going to give here this morning, they come from our Heavenly Father, and I pray, God, that we would receive it. We'd stop making excuses for ignoring you and disobeying you, and we would get serious about being the kind of children, the the sons and the daughters that we ought to be. And I pray, Father, that you would bless this time together. If anyone is not saved that's listening, Lord, I pray that you would get a hold of their heart and help them to make that decision that they need to make and to stop waiting and putting it off before it's eternally too late. And I pray that all of us would have hearts that are right with you. Bless your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week in part number one, we saw Roman numeral one and two. Point number one, we looked at the kingdoms of this world, and we saw a lot of things regarding the the devil and God's uh, giving him certain authority and how that he tempted Jesus and how that in this time period that John is writing about, it's a time when Jesus is going to fulfill what the theme of this book is about. By the way, folks, this book 
it, the theme of it is not my salvation and your salvation. I, I, I hate to bust your narcissistic party. It's not about you. It's not about me. This book right here, listen, our salvation is a side note. It's a benefit, but it is not the theme. The theme of this book is the coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the entire plan for the ages is all about. The church age and my salvation and your salvation is just a small little part. I'm not saying it's not an important part. I'm just saying it's not the theme of this book. The theme of this book is the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We also saw the worth of worship, and we saw how that God is worthy of our worship, and that he also spells out in his word the way that he wants to be worshipped. And so that brings us to number point number three, and that is found in verse number 18. And I want to talk this morning about something that is sadly neglected in modern Christianity, and that is the wrath of the new king. Look at it with me once again in verse number 18. It says, the nations were angry and thy wrath is come. Now the anger of the nations is nothing. The Bible says, let the heathen rage. You know, you can be angry at God, but it's nothing. Whole nations can be angry at God. It's nothing. We don't affect him. He is holy and he is righteous. And just like the five-year-old child that gets angry at their parents and says, I'm going to hold my breath until I pass out if I don't get my way. And as parents, you know, how foolish is that? That's just the most ridiculous thing. Oh, so you're going to hold your breath and you're going to hurt yourself because you don't like what I said, you didn't get your way, a decision was made, you were told no. God forbid that somebody today would be told no. I got news for you, God is a God of no. I mean, sometimes, you know, have you ever been, if you had parents like mine, good parents, how often were you afraid to ask because you knew that they were probably going to say no? I had times where I would ask and I just knew the answer would would be no. Mom or dad would say, sure, son. And then I'd pass out, not literally, but it's like, what is this? I was just sure they were going to say no because it seems like they usually say no. Children, if you have parents that say no a lot, you have good parents. Amen. I hope some of you parents appreciate you've got a pastor that's telling your children the truth. All right? No is a good answer. And I would rather a parent say no occasionally when yes would have been appropriate than to say yes when the answer should have been no. How often do we feel guilty by this culture around us thinking that, oh, our children have to like us And we have to be pals and buddies, and so we're afraid to say no because they might not like us. It's time to man up and woman up and care more about the welfare of our children and doing what's best for them. That's what God put you here for. Listen, if you have to choose between being loved and being respected, as a parent, choose respect because that's what's going to help your children long term. 
So often, parents do what's best for them, not what's best for their children. Well, I want my children to like me. We all want, we all want everybody to like us. Why? Because we're sinners. Right? Sinners have an ego and we have pride and we want everybody to like us and respect us and love us and being, they want, we want everybody to be, to love us as much as we do. (laughs) But that's not what's best for our children. God is a God who says no. And nations get angry at him because they don't get their way. Individuals get angry at him because they don't get what they want or some bad thing happened to them. It didn't go the way that they wanted. And we say, oh, well, I'm just not going to believe in God. That's like the child holding his breath. You're just hurting yourself. And you know what? God is looking down going, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll just give you what you want. No, he's not. He's not going to do that. He's going to look down and go, you're an idiot. You say, that's what God says? Well, I mean, I, the God that I read about in the Bible, maybe it doesn't say it just that way, but I think that's what he really means. That's the way that he is. You say, I don't like a God that's that way. Too bad it's the only one there is. Let the heathen rage. Herbert Lockyer said this, How petty man's impotent anger standing here side by side with that of the omnipotent God. The nations were angry, but the wrath, the wrath of the king is come. Thy wrath is come. I, I like... Um, I like buffets and salad bars. I I really do. Today's a, like I mentioned, a splurge day. And so I'm going to have some food that I don't normally, I used to enjoy and I've tried to stop enjoying, but I still enjoy it. Just not as often. But, you know, salad bars and buffets, whether you're trying to watch your diet or you're just indulging, you go through a salad bar and a buffet. And what do you do? You pick and choose the things that you want or like and the things that you don't want or like. You just leave them there, right? Well, sadly, today is the day of buffet theology. People pick the attributes of God they like and leave off the ones that they don't. And in essence, man has produced a false god an idol, a God made in your image. That's what man has done. If you pick and choose the things about God that you like and ignore the ones that you don't, that is a God that is made in your image. And that's just not, that's foolishness. God's the one that created us in his image. So, reality check. You ready for a reality check? Some have claimed, and I think it's probably true, I didn't do the accounting myself, but some have claimed that the wrath or anger of God is referred to directly or indirectly as many as 600 times in the Bible. Now, that's nearly double the times that we find the love of God mentioned in the Bible. How about that? 
Now, in modern Christianity, if you turn on all of these famous preachers, whether they be men or women, I don't care if it's Joe Oystein, Joe I can't even say his name, or Joyce Myers, and, and by the way, I don't care... I don't care if she said something that you like. She's a woman. She's not supposed to be a preacher. It's just in the book. But regardless, modern Christianity, even the more fundamental and the more uh, evangelical, well-known leaders have a tendency to ignore the attributes of God that people don't want to hear about. And we need to hear about it because it's the God that we worship. A wrathless God does not make him more attractive. It makes him morally indifferent. And that's the God that people want today, a God that is morally indifferent. They can go to church and be LGBTQ, ABC, XYZ, whatever the added alphabets and numbers are going to be in the future, and it'll continue the perversion. And, and by the way, what happened to our education system saying that we're supposed to, that science is the answer? Right. Oh, science is the answer against God. Evolution, evolution must be true because that's what science says. Science comes out and proves that there's a difference in the DNA between men and women, male and female. Oh, but we ignore the science when it's inconvenient, right? Why? Because man wants what he wants and he's not even going to be true. If science is your God... You, you're gonna pick and choose the attributes of your God that you want. A wrathless God does not make him more attractive, it makes him morally indifferent. Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. D.A. Carson said it like this, Thus, although he does love us, never does he fall in love with us. Let me back up, and you may not have been paying close attention. Thus, although he does love us, never does he fall in love with us. Because that suggests he is caught up in a web of emotion that controls him apart from what he might think or his judgment or his sovereignty or his justice might demand. I think that is well said if you really think about what it said. God loves you, but he didn't fall in love with you. It's not an uncontrollable emotion. His love is based on a decision and a commitment for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you think that God loves you aside from the cross of Calvary and you think that God loves you because you're so wonderful and so lovable, you are missing the true nature of the God of this book right here. But isn't the God of wrath, the God of the Old Testament, 
I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I've heard it way too many times. Wait a minute. That's the God of the Old Testament. He's the same God. He doesn't change. He hasn't changed. Listen, the, the message of salvation has changed. We are saved by grace through faith. Our salvation has nothing to do with the commandments of God. We don't have a Levitical priesthood and a blood sacrifice, and we don't have all of the things that the the nation of Israel had, but we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's the same God, and it's Jesus Christ the same yesterday and forever. He's not changed. There's no God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament if there were, what about Romans 1.18 where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. You ought to take the time to read the rest of Romans chapter number 1. And you would find that the same God of the Old Testament that said... All of this gender bender and sexual perversion and all of this, God said it's an abomination to him, is the same God in Romans chapter number one that when he talked about men working with men and women with women doing that which is unseemly, God said that his wrath is revealed. It's an abomination to God as well. I understand that there are people who struggle with certain desires, but you know what? Just because you have a desire, that doesn't make that desire your identity. You may be struggling with a desire that is not holy and not righteous, and you've got to yield to God and say, God, I'm going to repent of this, and I'm going to ask you to help me on a daily basis to do the right thing. Just like the person that has anger in his heart, who every time somebody cuts him off in traffic wants to kill him. That doesn't mean that you have the right that, well, God made me a murderer. God made me this way. It's not God's fault. There are all kinds of natural temptations and lusts and different things that we deal with as humans. And some of them are maybe inherent in our personality, but many of them are developed by the culture around us. How many, how many people, listen, you're not going to convince me. No one can convince me that when I was in fourth grade, that half of my classmates were sitting in class struggling whether they were a boy or a girl. No way, no how. Somebody put that in their head. And we are dealing with cultural things that have been placed in our children's head by Disney and Nickelodeon and the school system and all these things. And we need to deal with it. We need to fear God. Just because God still looks down on these things just like he did in the days of Noah. So when God looked down upon humanity in the times of Noah, he didn't say, oh, well, you know what, I guess I'll just put up with it because they, you know, they don't know any better. They do know better because Noah was out there preaching righteousness and they they ignored him. They heard the truth. They held the truth in unrighteousness. 
And God said, I wish I'd have never made man. I'm going to have to destroy him because he, the thoughts and the imaginations of his heart are only evil continually. If I could get back now to our text, notice it says in verse number 18 that it says the time of the dead that they should be judged. There is a time for the, the time of the dead is the time when they're going to be judged. And this is a time for both condemnation and reward. The wicked will be judged. The righteous will be rewarded. When God evens everything out in his justice, how foolish are we going to feel forever questioning him? Can I remind all of us that we have very limited knowledge? We have tunnel vision of what we see that goes on in this world around us. God sees the big picture and he, he knows and he understands that sin has brought so many injustices into this world. And we sit back and we say, well, God, you could have stopped that from happening when some evil thing happens and some tragedy. And we say, oh, God, why didn't you control that? And then when God in his consistency and justice says, okay, you want me to control that? then I'm going to have to step in. If I'm going to be fair, I'm going to have to control you in this area in our life. And we say, God, you're mean because all you want to do is control me. Buffet theology. We pick and choose and we judge God. Jonathan Edwards, back in the 1600s, preached a great sermon. Many of you have heard of it called Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he preached the truths that I'm presenting to you here today. And there were literally hundreds of people that heard him read that sermon, that they were crying out before he even got done. They were coming forward and they were crying out, Oh God, save us! They're accepting Jesus Christ because they recognized how close that they were for a holy God to drop them off into a devil's hell. They didn't say, how could you be that mean, God? They trusted that the God that was being presented was the true picture of God. And instead of challenging God, they looked at their self and said, I better flee from the wrath to come. At least they had some sense. People today don't have enough sense. They just think that, oh, I'll just blame God. And then when I st- if I stand before him one day, I'll have my excuses as to why I'm a victim. And God the whole time is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. None of us are going to get anything over on God. He's the one in control. And the sooner that we learn to trust him because, hey, he is a God of wrath. And he is a God of judgment, but rest assured, all of his wrath, all of his judgment is according to righteousness. And that's the difference. I have wrath and I get angry, but mine, I, I'm not a, I'm not perfectly righteous. I don't have a perfect perception. I don't know all, but God does. And that's why the sooner that we learn to trust him, the better off that our life will be. We will feel so foolish forever questioning the integrity of God. Now, the tribulation period is a time when God's wrath 
and it's also referred to as Jacob's trouble. It's going to be poured out upon this world. And God's going to judge the world. But Ezekiel 7 makes it clear that his primary focus is going to be on Israel. And I don't have time to go there here this morning. But I do want to remind you before I go to our second and last point, And that is this, that in the Bible there is more than one judgment. There's the great white throne, there's the judgment of the nations, there's the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to see more about that here in just a moment. And so point number four, I want to talk about the reward of his servants. We read about it right here in verse number 18, that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants. They should be judged and they shall be rewarded. Remember the remark that the farmer made in my story several weeks ago? I'm so glad that I stumbled across that little story. It has resonated in my heart, and and I hope maybe that it will in yours too. God doesn't settle all of his accounts in October, but he settles them all in his time. There is a time of judgment coming to all of us. Being saved does not afford you an escape from judgment. It may deliver you from the great judgment, but not all judgment. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, Knowing therefore, look at this, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. We have Master Club awards throughout the Master Club year, and every Wednesday night at the last 10, 15 minutes of the night, the kids come in, and some earned rewards, and some didn't. You know, the ones who didn't earn rewards, they can sit there and go, well, you know, I'll work harder and maybe I'll get an award next week. Some kids don't care and other kids are highly motivated. They want more badges. They want more ribbons. They want to be called up here to the platform and their name said publicly. Some want it, some care, and some don't care. But the ones who didn't have a good award on a particular Wednesday then they can shoot for it again next Wednesday. But brothers and sisters, when this judgment seat of Christ is coming, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You don't get another chance. You don't get a retake. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. If you think that you're going to stand in line and God's going to dole out rewards to someone at the judgment seat of Christ and then you're going to be standing there going, "Okay, I'm next." Boy, God is so good. He's he's going to be he's going to give me grace. He's going to he's going to overlook all of my failures and then when we come up next, he's going to take all of our life just like he did the previous one and he's going to put it through the fire. And he's going to be just. He's going to be righteous. The fire is going to try every man's work. And it's going to be consistent. He's not going to play favorites. He's not going to grade you and I on the curve. 
We are going to be judged justly. We ought to recognize that even though we're saved and we've escaped the judgment of hell and we've escaped the judgment of that great white throne, it's going to be the terror of the Lord when we stand before him and give an account one day. And the Apostle Paul makes that clear. In Revelation 20 and verse number 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Every one of us are going to be judged. And when this day of wrath comes, it's going to be a time of judgment. And then notice at the last of verse number 18, it says, Thou shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. You know, it's interesting that we're in the tribulation period. We're living in a day and age where, I mean, you can you can kill babies, but just don't hurt the earth, right? That's the way the liberals view. You know, it's like, hey, it's not a baby. It's your, it's, you know, you... Ladies have the right to do whatever they want to with their body, but you don't have the right to do what you want to on your property, right? Right. You have rights over your body or over life, but you can't drill for oil on your property or whatever the case may be. We have regulations to protect the earth, but the souls, the humanity, are secondary. And what do they do? The liberals... The liberals look at us conservatives that have a biblical worldview of the ecosystem and they accuse us of destroying the earth. But nothing could be, it's just the total opposite of what's going on. They're the ones in God's eyes that are destroying the earth because God's not concerned about the ecosystem. He's concerned about the moral system. He's concerned about this world morally and spiritually. Listen, there are some things that are always important to me when I vote for a candidate. The sanctity of human life. Religious freedom. How do they stand with the nation of Israel? All of these are important things, but sadly... Those are the only things really that we can look at when it comes to an in, to voting for our nation's leaders because you can't really look at issues of character and integrity because you can't hardly find any leader that has it. The ones that have character and integrity and will tell you the honest, transparent truth, they are so unelectable that they don't even run. They all have to sidestep. They can't give a straight answer because if they give a straight answer, the media is just going to twist it around. And you know what? They have no chance whatsoever. Didn't always be the case. Used to be that character and honesty and integrity. Nowadays, if a leader of this country gets caught in a lie, you know what they do? They just just take take a bunch of mud and sling it at their opponent and the dishonesty, it's just deceit upon deceit. It's just pitiful. But I'm still going to vote for the best that I can, especially one that's going to stick with Israel because God said, I'm going to bless them that bless thee and I'm going to curse him that curseth thee. That's a promise from God. That's important. 
You say, well, Israel is a wicked nation. The Jews are blah, blah, blah. I'm going to let God worry about that, okay? I'm just going to worry about obeying what God told me to obey. But when I read this, that them that destroy the earth, I think about Ahab and Elijah, where Elijah comes up and Ahab says, Art, art thou he that troubleth Israel? You know, you're the one that's causing the problem. And Elijah said, it's not me. I'm not caused it. And First Kings 18 makes that clear. He said, you're the one that's causing the problem. Who was right, Ahab or Elijah? Well, Elijah was because he was a man of God. And so in conclusion, we know about John the Baptist He was the forerunner of Christ. Jesus gave his endorsement of John the Baptist by saying that there hasn't been a greater preacher than John. And John was a pretty rough preacher. John would not have made it on the networks, religious networks today. John, I don't think, would be a best-selling author. I don't think that he would be trying to lift up your self-esteem and make you feel better about yourself. John was a tell it like it is. And what did John say when the religious leaders came out to hear him? His voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm sure that he was pretty dynamic. I'm sure he was a sight to see. And they came out to him and he said, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They weren't coming out for the right reason. Perhaps some of them were coming out to hear John because that's what everybody else was doing. Some of you are here in church today just because that's what you're expected to do. You didn't really come here to get something to change your life and to draw your heart closer to the Lord. You came to be seen or you came to check it off of your list and feel better about yourself and not feel like that you're a bad person and so forth, but you didn't necessarily come for the right reason. John said to those type of people, he said, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? We can get so complacent, so familiar with the things of God and the truth. And there's, you know, a a preacher can stand up here behind the pulpit and tell you these hard truths, and it's like, I've heard them a hundred times. I've ignored them a hundred times. What's one more? Psalm 7, verse number 11, it says, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Listen, if you have never been saved, then your sin has caused you to be at enmity with God. You need to be reconciled, and he needs to be propitiated. Let me explain that. You need to be reconciled to him. The only way that you and I can be reconciled is if he is propitiated. That word propitiation means to be made favorably inclined. God looks down at you and I, and if he sees us in our sin, then there's enmity, there's division. 
He sees us as something that's filthy and disgusting in his eyes. You say, wait a minute, I thought that God was a God of love. I thought for God so loved the world. Yes, he does. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When we start thinking about God and his love toward us, without it being in context of Jesus and the cross, then we are missing the point. We are at enmity with God. We need to be reconciled. If you have never truly been born again, your sins have never been forgiven, there is enmity and division between you and a holy, righteous God. And I'm telling you, you need to get saved so that you can have him look down upon you as your heavenly father in love and righteousness. First John 4.10 says, herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I hope you see the context there. Ignore what the modern preachers are telling you. The self-esteem, they're a bunch of liars. And recognize that God is a righteous God. He's holy. And he is angry at our sin and our wickedness. You need to be reconciled. You need to receive what he has done for you to propitiate you from your sins. And I close with this statement. Christ took on himself the judgment for your sins. Have you accepted his atonement? If you haven't, don't leave this place today. Don't wait another moment. Get reconciled to God and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior.